Well, this is Wynne Grant. I'm a professor of politics at Warwick, and I have with me here Graham Wilson, who is a professor of political science at Boston University. As part of the developing relationship between Warwick and Boston, we have been holding a workshop over the last couple of days on the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Of course, the crisis is by no means over, and there may be more shocks to come, but it's probably a good time to take stock. Graham, what do you see as the agenda? I think we were thinking first about the scale of the crisis. This is such an enormous event in terms of the world financial and economic system. Uh, it was a crisis that reached out to pretty much every continent. It involved some of the most famous financial institutions in the world. And, of course, the cost of government has been quite prodigious. But we've also been thinking about the consequences of this crisis. Obviously, you have to think first in the terms of the consequences about the suffering in terms of unemployment and economic loss that people have, su have suffered. But we've also been thinking about how the crisis has shaken up how we think about how the world works. We came into the beginning of this century with about 25 years of accumulated policy development in terms of what makes for good economic policy, how governments should behave, how they should manage their finances, and how they should steer the economy, uh, or how they should allow their central banks to steer their economy with politicians staying out of the way. And pretty much 25 years of policy development has halted, has, if you like, been stood on its head during this crisis with major policy initiatives that really undo everything that governments have been settling on as best practice for the previous 25 years. Yeah, I think what you've been saying there is to really bring out the magnitude of this crisis. And this was a theme that was taken up by Andrew Gamble, who's Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge, in his opening remarks at our workshop. And I think he emphasised that this was really the biggest crisis since the one of 1929 to 32, both in terms of the, the scale of events and the number of um, financial institutions that were in serious trouble. And also, it was a crisis not of the periphery of the world, but one that really took place in the very heartland of the world economy in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, of course, in the United Kingdom, it's transferred from being a banking crisis to a fiscal crisis, and there's still a lot of um, difficult decisions to be taken. What we haven't seen, of course, is a repeat of the 1930s reflationary cycle. Um, but I think in some ways the solutions that have been pursued and were necessarily pursued have presented us with a new set of problems. And I suppose what Andrew says was that there are two broad possibilities for the future. Either the ascendancy of the United States is restored, it leads to the process of globalization renewing again after a pause and the dollar will remain as the dominant currency in the world, or we might see some multilateral reordering of the international economy with new political arrangements involving coordination and cooperation between different countries. So I think we were thinking about at least uh, two different levels. One was within countries. How did governments try to cope with this uh, almost unprecedented event? And you know, we often think in terms of politics as a power struggle, which it often is, but politics and government is also about puzzling and trying to figure out how you deal with the circumstances that confront you. And we have been trying to make sense of the quite remarkable changes that we saw within countries as they struggled to deal with this crisis. Uh, so we, we saw these things which were previously uh, 
almost unimaginable, like an American government nationalizing major automobile companies or nationalizing a giant uh, insurance corporation. In this country, of course, Gordon Brown, who had been one of the founders of New Labour and as part of that had repudiated Clause 4 of the Constitution, now presiding over the nationalization of major banks like the Bank of Scotland, and as I mentioned in the introduction, all sorts of policy guidelines like keep your government deficit within a tight boundary of 3% of GDP, keep total government borrowing down, all of this stuff thrown out of the window in an emergency as the politicians and the civil servants rush to try to work out how do you deal with this. And of course, uh, the question is whether it's a bit like Humpty Dumpty. Once you've broken a, pro a policy mold, once you've uh, had to give up the way of thinking about how to solve problems that you've developed for the last 25 years, can it be put back together again? Or do you have to now carry on forward to try to think of some new way to run economies, to stabilize the situation? Do you have to invent a new sort of set of policy paradigms for the way forward? And as you've said, Wynne, we were also very conscious of thinking about what all of this means in terms of power shifts, power shifts within countries where the cost of this crisis, the fiscal imbalances that this crisis has either caused or accentuated will take out of consideration certain policy approaches which otherwise would have been there, made it difficult to, to pursue certain policy values that people would otherwise very much like to have continued. Uh, but also, as well as changes in power and priority within countries, this huge question of what the crisis means in terms of the global balance of power. And you've already alluded to this in terms of will the, the dominance of the United States be quickly reestablished or not? And if the United States doesn't reestablish its dominance, who will do the uh, heavy lifting in terms of running world economic and financial institutions? But also the, the question of where is Asia in this? There's so much of the money has been coming from Asia, the complex relationship that we've tried to solve in the, crisis, in, in the conference in terms of thinking about the relationship between the money flowing out of China into the United States and the origins of the, of, of the financial crisis. But at the end of the crisis, what does all of this mean about the world balance of power? And have we seen during this crisis a really fundamental shift in the balance of power between the United States and Europe on the one hand and the Asian economies on the other? Well, of course, what we have seen is that the dollar remains, in effect, the, the world's reserve currency. But I think uh, Bill Grimes from Boston in his paper brought out very clearly the importance of this G2 relationship with, between the United States and China. And we see that China has accumulated these huge reserves which are in dollars. It holds all these U.S. Treasury bonds. And of course the question is, how long will China want to go on holding very substantial reserves in that kind of form, supposing at some point you know, China decides it wants to sell off some of these bonds or there is some other tension that arises in the relationship between China and the United States. We have seen, of course, the emergence of the, the G20 arrangement, which replaces, in effect, the old G7, G8 arrangement, brings in a much larger range of countries to the task of um, 
international economic coordination. And I think that arrangement has worked better than I thought it would, given that you've got a larger number of countries involved. But it's clear that right at the heart of the discussions which go on in G20 is this need for mutual accommodation between the United States and, and China. We also, of course, have to think about the role of the European Union, um, the tensions that the Eurozone has been facing, um, you know, the possibility of default in Greece or even in other countries such as uh, Ireland or perhaps even Spain, and then how the European Union would respond to that sort of challenge. Right, and Bill made a fascinating point uh, about China. He uh, emphasised just how huge are the Chinese uh, foreign currency reserves primarily held in dollars, equivalent to 50% of GDP. And Bill's point was that if the uh, dollar goes down by 5%, or let's say 10% for the sake of simple arithmetic, that wipes out 5% of Chinese GDP or an amount equivalent to 5% of Chinese GDP, which is the sort of loss we're worrying about in connection with the financial crisis. So China is very exposed. And I think Bill brought out for me very vividly the way in which this enormous financial strength of Asia, particularly China, is in a way not clearly articulated, is not well articulated in the world system. Well, they've got all that money sitting there, but their ability to express their interests, to press for their interests, and to demand institute through institutional means that their interests be taken in, into account, for example, in terms of how the United States manages its economy and therefore the value of the dollar, is very underdeveloped. Um, my mind during that went back to the situation in the 1920s when economic power had crossed the Atlantic and you had econ the economic power and the financial power sitting in the United States. And the United States at that point in its history didn't know quite what to do with it. And it seems to me that we've got an almost similar situation today that we've got all this financial power sitting in Asia, but it's very fragmented. They don't really have institutional linkages within Asia and they don't really have as yet very effective ways of articulating uh, their interests and their point of view in, in, in the world in commensurate with that financial strength. I think you're right that the institutional linkages within Asia are not as well developed as they are in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe. <clears throat> that may occur over time. Of course, I think what China would like and what others would like are more effective regulatory arrangements for the financial system and there are a whole series of needs there. I think we are seeing some sort of progress in the, the emergence of the Financial Stability Board, which is a kind of prototype for a global regulatory agency for the financial system. But of course, there is a lot of resistance in the financial services industry to forms of regulation, which they would see as um, undercutting their vitality and their profits. So this is um, something we're going to have to monitor, I think, over the next six months to a year. The plan is that we will meet up in Boston again in September and review uh, what we've learned from this workshop and, and take this work forward. And if I could just pick up from one of the points that you made there, Wim, that I've been very conscious of as we've been meeting here at Warwick talking about the aftermath of the financial and economic crisis, or if we're unlucky, the continuation of that crisis. Uh, over in Copenhagen, the countries have been meeting to 
supposedly address the environmental challenges that face the world. And one linking theme between what we've been talking about and what's been happening there is that we still live in a world of nation states, even though we know that we've got common problems. In the case of Copenhagen, the world climate challenges, in the case of what we're talking about, the need to stabilize the world economy and prevent any continuation or occurrence of the, of the crisis that we've been experiencing. But as we try to deal with these problems, we do so from a position of still, by and large, having nation states that are naturally looking at every proposal and saying, how does this affect us? How does this affect our interests? And of course, combining that sort of mentality with the need to look after the common interests of the globe is a fundamental challenge. Indeed it is, and I think this is one of the things that is so valuable about this cooperation between Warwick and Boston. It gives us an opportunity to bring together people from both sides of the Atlantic uh, to discuss these issues, and uh, I'm looking forward to us meeting again and discussing these things in greater depth.